Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another episode of the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. Josh Bashan. And I'm Dana Zook. Josh, today I think we need to talk a little bit about winter forage, small grain forage, producing that. Um, and to do that, we're going to talk about fertility, right? Kind of, that's going to be the main talk of what we're going to do today. Yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah. I guess we don't have to talk just about forage. I think we're going to talk a little bit about grain-only prospects as well. Uh but it all kind of goes hand in hand in the fall to talk about forage. So what's the kind of to get started along this path? What do I need to be doing right now? Either right before my drill rolls or <laughs> kind of some people are probably already getting started or as I'm thinking about getting started planting wheat, what, what's my first step to figure out what I need? Probably the easiest, most economical thing you can ever do is get a good soil sample. I know people have heard that year after year after year, but. We always get guys calling or coming by and talking to us, asking how much they need to fertilize, and we can't ever give an answer unless we have something to base it off of. So at least getting the routine, which I think $10, gets you soil pH, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. That's always a good step. 10 bucks for a quarter section, definitely going to be economical, so you know if you're high or low on whatever. So that's always the first step. And so when you start looking at doing that now, because in the season, typically we always do that late summer, early fall, because the way that nutrient cycles are in the soil, we're kind of decomposed our previous crops harvest, and we're kind of in that neutral zone where we're not getting big fluctuations of tie-up or immobilization. And so we get a better understanding how we need to fertilize that small grain or wheat crop. Yeah, I look at soil sampling kind of like i do budgeting and record keeping because a lot of people will ask you know what's a good soil sample and there's a lot of different ways you can do that all the way down to grid sampling and all the way up to your composite sample for 160 acres and i would encourage people just to don't record something you're not going to use so if you're not going to utilize grid sampling whether that's with lime application or something like that if you don't have the equipment to do variable rate that grid sampling probably isn't going to do you much good if you're looking at one prescription for the whole field. So that's where yeah. kind of the, the composite gets you where you need to be, especially just in the big picture. If you haven't ever done it before, it's probably a good idea to start there. Yeah, at the very least. And most of these guys, they know their own fields pretty well, especially if they farmed them their whole life. They know there's different soil textures out there, you know, the red hill versus the, the bottom. So they, sometimes we kind of get guys split up their own field because they know their field. Sometimes we look at the soil survey maps and we can break it down that way. Uh, grid samplings, like you said, correcting acidic soils with lime, variable rate lime. That system has paid for itself very, very well for a lot of guys. So if you are knowing you have certain parts of your field that's going to be acidic, getting that grid sample, you know where to put that lime so you're not making high spots out there. Been very beneficial, but at the very least, that composite. 15, 20 soil samples over that area yeah. give you a good average. So how often should you soil sample, Josh? 
I mean, like I said, for 10 bucks, it doesn't hurt to do it every year, but uh, they say for immobile nutrients like phosphorus and potassium, we're looking at, you know, perennial pastures and stuff like that every three years. But when you're looking at crops and introduced species where you're up in the, the, the yield gold on those forages, we're looking at nitrogen that really needs to happen every year. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that yields are highly variable and that's pretty much what you're, where that's the area where you're removing those nutrients is through the grain. Yeah. So every truckload of wheat or sorghum or soybeans you haul off that field is a certain percentage phosphorus and nitrogen and potassium and micronutrients. So anything you pull off that yeah. field, whether it be grain, beef, Grass. hay bales, yeah. you know, yeah. if you're taking something off that field, you're taking nutrients with it. No. Yeah. And like again, we say nitrogen is highly variable uh, given the day, not that nitrogen value can change but like you yeah. said phosphorus and potassium tend to be a little more stable over time but again if you pulled a 30 bushel wheat crop off two years ago and you pulled a 60 bushel off last year there's not really a great rule of thumb to tell you how much phosphorus to put down to, to replace that so you really have to test to figure that out and we've got some long-term wheat fertility plots here at Lahoma West Enid and it's just a big swing on how much you fertilize and how much yield is because we've Seen some years where not fertilizing at all gets you a lot more than you think. Big swings from, you know, 20 bushels to 80 bushels and doesn't factor in that previous crop at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we get we get nitrogen from rainfall and things like that. So, like you said, and based on soil activity, soil microbe activity and things like that, breaking down previous year's organic matter all affects what nutrients are available. And that's why... That the soils testing lab there at OSU and Stillwater, we're, especially on crops like wheat, we're running off of sufficiency. We're not doing removal. Uh, so in our systems, in our climate, in our ecosystem here, that's the system that pays off for itself. And we can utilize those numbers to fertilize that next crop more efficiently. Yeah. So what about sufficiency, Josh? Can you explain a little bit more like we did earlier? Talk about the sufficiency and what that means. So for immobile nutrients, like mainly you guys are talking about phosphorus and potassium. You're on our soil test index values that we get from those soil tests. At OSU, we're running a Malik 3 test to get those estimates. We're looking at a sufficiency, and so you'll get that soil test index for phosphorus or potassium. Compare it to the chart for the sufficiency levels, and that'll tell you how much you need to apply. So we're looking at that, and some guys get some reports from other labs. We'll get a report in parts per million. We can multiply parts per million times two to get pounds per acre of that nutrient. So we can do a little back figuring off that as well. But when we're looking at sufficiency, say for instance, uh, potassium, if it says you're at 225, I believe, soil test index, that's going to be a 95% sufficiency. So no matter what you do, that crop's going to be capped at 95% of its yield capability. Unless you put out that, I believe, another 20 pounds of or potassium. And so you start thinking, well, 20 pounds of potassium to get 5% more. Then you start looking at what kind of production scenario are you in? Are you in a 30 bushel wheat crop or are you in a 100 bushel wheat crop? So even in a 30 bushel wheat crop, 5% of that's what, two and a half bushels? Two and a half bushels going to probably still pay on that investment of 20 pounds of potassium. And the thing about it is we all have yield goals and what we think it might make, but you never know what your yield potential is 
at the beginning of the year. Yeah. So, you know, if you think, oh, I can, I can absorb that risk. That's not a big deal. And then you, you know, you come springtime and you have 60 or 70 bushel yield potential and you've lost 5% of that yield. That's yeah. going to, you're going to really feel silly <laughs> 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 because it definitely would have paid for itself. So that's what, you know, Southern Great Plains, there's a lot of factors that determine that yield potential. And so we don't have it as cush as some of those, those I state guys where they know year in and year out, what kind of range they're going to be on their corn yield. But we don't know if we're going to have that 20 bushel wheat or that 100 bushel wheat potential this time of year. So uh, obviously going off past yield production on that ground, you know what it's capable of most years, but stuff like potassium and phosphorus, you got to keep on top of. You can look at removal to keep them up, but that's efficiency, especially goes back to how good was your soil sample. We don't want to shortcut ourselves, but we don't want to be throwing money out there that we don't have to if we don't need to. That's a whole lot of talk about sufficiency. Um, <laughs> Sorry, so that was being devil's advocate. We kind of, the main goal of today is, I think, in my mind, is kind of getting to the point where we're fertilizing for cattle on wheat. We're yeah. talking about pasturing wheat. So if I'm just a grain only guy, that's probably a more simple scenario. Kind of where, where do I need to look at fertility on my farm for if I'm just looking at grain only and not wanting to run cattle on wheat? When we're looking at grain only, uh, our historical rule of thumb has been that two pounds of nitrogen is needed for a, a bushel of wheat. And so that's for the whole season. Uh, obviously, some guys have grown up with heavy anhydrous up front pre-plant. And so we still have that mentality that we need to put out quite a bit in the fall. But if we are truly in that grain-only system, recent work last four years with Dr. Brian Arnall's crew looking at late season applications of nitrogen, we're still able to get that yield fertilizing in March. Uh, so we don't really need that much out there in the fall because we just have more options to lose it, whether that be heavy rains, droughts, or leaching, uh, volatilization, denitrification. There's a lot of ways we can lose that nitrogen. So there's no need to put out more than we need. You start talking about what we need, I would say at least 30 pounds just to get the crop established. Ideally, we want just a few tillers on that wheat. It will survive the winter here in the Southern Great Plains. So we don't need that much for a grain only system. Yeah, I've grown up in the Southern Great Plains. I never really thought about our growing season as being long, but it is <laughs> very, very long compared to other parts of the world and other parts of the country. Yeah. yeah, so you think about putting some of that, or you say you're going full full rate of anhydrous up front. And oftentimes, I mean, this year it went out a little bit later in Oklahoma just because it was so wet all summer. But we would see people going out August 1 when I was younger, putting out anhydrous. And that has to sit there all the way until May, yeah. basically, whenever our yield is really made. And, and there's just so many opportunities to lose that. And one of the reasons for that, you look at the economics, anhydrous tends to be our cheapest source of in. Yeah, you know, you're looking at something like I ran some prices here recently and you're looking about 21 cents per actual pound of N for anhydrous source where with 46 L you're like 36 cents. So yeah, it just keeps ratcheting up per pound of actual N, even though anhydrous per ton might be $340 per ton where 46 L is $330 a ton yeah. since it's so much more concentrated that anhydrous is actually a cheaper source of nitrogen per actual pound of N. And then for our guys looking at liquid, you know, you're talking 38 cents per actual pound of in. So it just keeps getting more and more expensive the farther away you get from anhydrous. So, you know, that's why we saw a lot of people going out up front, uh, putting that anhydrous down because it's hard to do that in season. Yeah. 
especially if we're in those situations where we want that fall pasture. Yeah. And so that's where we start Dana talking about how much forage should we really be looking at producing in that fall? Are we producing one ton of forage, three tons of forage? <laughs> it all depends, doesn't it? It depends, yeah. <laughs> it all depends. <laughs> all right, I'm giving a deer in the headlights look. Don't put me in the spot like that. That's not nice. <laughs> so if you look at the fact sheets and production manuals from OSU, we've shown that it takes about 60 pounds of nitrogen to make a dry ton of wheat forage or small grains. Whether that be rye, triticale, wheat, uh, barley, or bu- barley or oats, uh, takes about 60 pounds of nitrogen to make a ton, or 30 pounds to make a thousand pounds of forage. So we start looking at that, how much forage we're going to need to produce. We're looking at one ton. We need another 60 pounds out there. So when we start looking at something where we're wanting forage off of, not just grain only, we have to have more nitrogen out there. So we're looking at in addition to that 30 pounds, like in a grain only, we might need another 30 or 40 pounds for forage. Uh, so we're looking at, you know, maybe 60 pounds up front for getting that fall fall forage production. So, it, Josh, does it take 30 pounds of nitrogen to produce 1,000 pounds of dry forage? Yep. Okay. Is that what we and said earlier? Assuming you get rain and everything Assuming else. you <laughs> get rain. Uh, looking at our, you know, our pasture fertility guide handbook and... It says, you know, Western Oklahoma, maybe one to two tons per acre or one to two tons of dry forage per acre. And then here, one to three tons. That's a pretty big swing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a little bit of a discussion prior to the podcast about what is actually. When you think about a hay bale being 1,200, 1,500 pounds. Yeah. You know, that, that's a big difference in forage when you think about one to two tons or two to three. And, mm-hmm. and there's other factors that we've seen in that as well. Planting date's a big factor. I mean, obviously. Oh, for, it's huge. Yeah. Planting the first of September versus late October, you're not going to get that three tons on October 30th than you would September 1st. So, and I think most of our producers recently have been pushing planting date back because we've had so much trouble with armyworms. Mm-hmm. Armyworms have been a huge deal. We're also starting to see some reports come in this fall, so they're going to be there waiting on us. Uh, we've seen them in other crops, uh, so it's going to be another fighting issue again. No. Well... So I talked about, you know, the source of nitrogen, and I think it's important for people to think about all the different areas they're getting nitrogen from, whether it's up front with anhydrous. And then we talk a lot about, you know, the banding phosphorus with our crops. You want yeah. to talk a little bit about why we do that again? or Well, the reason why we're banding fertilizer directly with the seed, and that's what we usually call in furrow. Uh, so we're more efficient with it, or the, the product placement. Uh, we're going to be able to take more advantage of, especially, like I said, immobile nutrients like phosphorus. It's not going to move with the soil water. Uh, we need that closer to the roots uh, to get it in the plant, especially in low acidic soils. It's getting tied up, and we're having aluminum toxicities. Having that phosphorus right there is going to be more efficient. We're looking at research. Uh, we're able to cut back that rate. So if you're looking at your soil sample, says you need 100 pounds of phosphorus. If you're banding it, you might drop that by 20% and go with 80 pounds. And we're looking at fertilizers directly with the seed. Sometimes we can get some salting out issues where stuff like nitrogen or potassium, uh, if we put too much, can be pretty detrimental to that seed germination and seed health. Uh, so we want to limit that to about 30 pounds of nitrogen or potassium. So if you're looking at something like 18460, 18% nitrogen, you can go 
150, 160 pounds of actual product, 18460 per acre directly with the seed and still stay below that 30 pounds of nitrogen. And that's on seven and a half inch spacing, probably. Well, and all small grains, we're talking narrow rows, so I don't think no. they deviated in different row spacings like we do with canola and some yeah. other things. But the farther west you go, you might see guys with 12-inch hoe drills or things like that, and you can get into some issues yeah. probably banding and salting out. The wider the, the wider the row, the more fertilizer is going to be concentrated in that row. So you're taking 12 inches worth of product with the seed versus 6 inches worth of product with the seed. So essentially you doubled how much fertilizer you put right there with the seed. Dry soils, dry sandy soils, you're going to see more of a response, so you might back off that rate. But if you're in heavy ground, moist ground, good soil moisture, uh, that 30 pounds is definitely a safe rate. I was thinking about different scenarios, and I've got an interesting one myself because I need to plant a particular 80 acres for grazing, and it was in crabgrass this summer, but that thing's like a... 9 to a 5.2 on pH. Yeah. So that's going to, one, affect the root health of my wheat, and it's not going to grow as well, and we have lower forage. I'm also going to have to ban phosphorus in row to try to promote some of that root growth. But how many pounds of, of 1846 do I need to run to kind of counteract that? And then if I do that, am I getting any benefit from that phosphorus other than tying up aluminum? I uh, don't have the data off the top of my head, but definitely we've seen you know, with typical rates of that 100 to 150 pounds of DAP, 18.460, it's been light years ahead of none at all. So uh, I want to say a previous agronomist, Southwest Oklahoma, Mark Gregory, did some trials looking at broadcast versus in furrow. He was able to cut his rate in half from like 120 pounds uh, down to 60 pounds of product mm -hmm. and still got the same forage production off of it. And so... Phosphorus is going to help with that seedling vigor, that fall forage production, as well as alleviate temporarily some of those other issues like aluminum toxicity. Mm -hmm. Have we seen a lot of difference in varieties in terms of forage yield over the years? And a lot of Oklahoma varieties are bred for grazing grain, but yeah, anything from that standpoint? Or well, we definitely have some research going. You can always find the fall forage production. Uh, a uh, current report by OSU looking at different wheat varieties on how much fall forage production they produce. And there's always, you know, some towards the top that just tells you how much forage they can grow. Uh, it's not all going to be available to the, mm -hmm. the livestock grazing it. Uh, some are going to be more prostrate. So you're not going to get that sufficiency as high or utilization factor as high. Uh, and then some, they might produce a lot of forage. Uh, something that sticks out in my mind will be like a Billings. Excellent fall forage production, but it doesn't recover from grazing as well. Uh, so that's the reason why it was more of a grain only, not a dual purpose. So there are different varieties that do better. Uh, something like double stop. If you look at those charts I was talking about, it's not going to be high on the list for fall forage production. But what we've seen in the field time and time again is it handles heavy grazing very well and it continues to produce throughout that grazing period. So. And these trials, we're letting it grow up and then clipping it at the end of the fall. And so you're seeing that total, but under heavy pressure, something like double stop is going to outperform some others. Yeah, I know we saw that in some of our clipping demos that with the, the recovery of that yeah. forage. So if you're grazing it really hard, there are some varieties that just don't do well. And we saw that particularly in those demonstrations <laughs> where we were kind of hoping for some recovery. Yeah. We clipped it too. We clipped it too low. So 
but the plant needs to take in sunlight to grow so if we graze heavily that plant's not going to produce as much as it was just letting it go mm-hmm. yeah we got to leave what four to five inches that's what i would ideally, typically say yeah ideally absolutely for wheat most of the time we're trying to grow as much as we can before it gets cold and so then once it gets to that point we start getting freezes soil temperatures start dropping in the 40s and 50s we're not getting a lot of growth out of it and so we're wanting to get that production before it gets cold yeah. so they can graze on it throughout the throughout the winter all right, guys. So what I heard was I need a soil sample as soon as possible because it takes time to get that that information back. And we're kind of into we're into planting season already for a lot of producers. If I'm going for grain only, what, Josh, how many pounds do I need up front? Uh, depending on your history, 20 to 40 pounds up front. Of nitrogen. From what's there plus what you put on. Um, I know a lot of guys have air seeders now they're putting down in furrow with the fertilizer, please don't put urea. Mm. Uh, I know I said 30 pounds of nitrogen, but that's looking at stuff like DAP and MAP, uh, but straight urea, you don't want to keep it blended. I know some guys started blending their wheat with their fertilizer. I might get by with a, a day or two with it blended, but if it's straight urea, it's going to start causing some harm to that seedling. Okay. And if I'm going out for grazing, putting down pre-plant, what do I need to look at? At least an additional 30 pounds on top of what you would do with grain only. Uh, but like I said, it's all depending on what your forage production potential is. If you think you can typically get three tons of forage, you're going to need 180 pounds of nitrogen out there. Okay. Uh, but most of us are going to be in that one to two tons. So 60 to 120 pounds of nitrogen in the fall to get that optimal fall forage. And hopefully fertility wise, that'll get us to Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then then we'll start talking a little bit about top dressing and things like that afterward, uh, trying to get us through the rest of the spring and the spring grazing period, and then also looking at graze out producers as well. So that's any other comments, guys. I think that pretty much yeah. is a wrap for small grain fertility, at least looking at the fall. I really appreciate everyone joining us for this podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with the educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.